It's been my privilege twice now to go to be with our bishop, our Kenyan bishop, Bishop James O'Chiel in Kenya, and to spend time in uh, East Africa. And I love to go to, to Africa. I learned so much about uh, ancient customs and tribal ways. Uh, in a lot of ways, African culture is much closer, much, much closer to Middle Eastern culture of the first century than is our own Western cultures. And so I always learn lots of things. And, and one of the things that I learned on one of my trips was the tradition surrounding marriage. Uh, when, when, a, when, a, when, a, when a a man has asked a woman to marry him and, is, and that's been arranged, and that has a lot to do with the families going and the uncles and the brothers going and, and negotiating uh, sheep or cows or whatever is being offered as, a, as, a, as a, an offering to the father of the bride. I like that because I've got two girls. You know, so I like to learn all about that. But once that's all been set, then the wedding is planned and they begin to get ready to go and, and actually have the wedding ceremony. And in, in African culture, at least East African culture, um, the, the tradition is that as you're invited to the wedding, then you're invited also to bring something with you to the wedding, which defers the cost. And again, having just married off a daughter, I can really appreciate these African cultural um, ways of doing these things so that you might be asked to bring a, a, a roasted goat or a, a, a Coca-Cola, a big thing of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is very popular in, in Africa. And you might be asked to bring some sort of traditional japate or some other traditional, um, Victoria knows what I'm talking about, traditional African dish. Uh, you might be asked to bring something in terms of decorations so that when they come together for a wedding, everybody has something to bring. Now, this may be a little bit of an insight as to how, in the midst of this wedding, uh, the, the, they would realize that they're out of wine. Um, somebody failed to bring the wine, or at least enough wine, to the wedding. Uh, one theologian I read this week said that he thought that perhaps it was because Jesus and his disciples had come and kind of crashed the wedding, and so 13 additional men drinking wine would have caused the wine supply to have cast, been diminished. Who knows? We don't know exactly the, the, the particulars, but we know there was this, this situation where all of a sudden there was not enough wine, and uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a crisis. Um, but wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I mean, what, you know, what kind of wine was this? What did it taste like? And, and how much? What an abundance. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been there and to have been a part of this wedding that Jesus was there with his disciples. And he, he does this amazing, amazing feat. I mean, I, I would have loved to have been a part of it. I'm sure you would have too. You know, weddings play a huge, uh, they, they're a huge piece of imagery in the whole of the, of the Bible. I don't know if you've really thought about it much, but when Adam and Eve come together, you know, it says there in, in chapter 2, uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so there's this, there's this marriage, this, this poetic marriage uh, liturgy that's there as, as, as Adam and Eve are, are become the first husband and wife. And of course, at the end of the Bible, we have what? We have the, the marriage feast of the Lamb as Jesus, the, the, the bridegroom, comes back to receive his bride, who is his church, the people that that are his, and he, he comes back as a, as a bridegroom to receive his bride, and so here's the marriage feast of the Lamb. And right smack dab in the middle is, is this poem of Solomon, the Song of Songs. It's a, it's a wedding poem between, between a husband and a wife. 
And, and, but all throughout Scripture, we see marriage. We see it in our Isaiah passage today. We see it in the Psalms. We see it carried out. Jesus frequently uses the imagery of marriage in his, in his parables. So it's, it's, a, it's a common theme. God does amazing things through marriage. He makes people grandparents through marriage. If you came in late, Jody and I got to meet our grandson on Friday night, 6.53. So many things. When, I, when I'm counseling and, and I'm leading young couples towards marriage, um, I, I like to remind them that, that marriage, you know, modern marriage, we tend to think of it being all about the bride and the groom. And I, I like to remind them that this is, you're a, you're a sacrament, you're a sign of something really greater than yourself. Because God is doing something with, this, this, with marriage much, much greater than any individual couple. And, um, and so it's, it's just an amazing thing. It's so appropriate that Jesus would use the occasion of marriage in his, in his own area. Uh, he, he didn't live in Cana, wasn't raised in Cana, but Cana was, the, was the, uh, the county seat, if you will. Cana was the big city that Nazareth went to when they wanted to get dressed up and go someplace. And so Jesus knows these people. He probably did carpentry with Joseph in the city. He, he, he's there for this wedding, and he's a part of it. And here Jesus chooses to give his first sign of what he's going to be about. The first, it says, revelation of his glory. And I'm just going to tell you up front, what is, the, what is the revelation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ? Well, it's his grace. It's his grace. It's unmerited favor by God. And that's exactly what we see poured out in this wine story in in John chapter 2. It's his grace. We know God is good. We know he is righteous and he is justice. And we will stand before him. Everyone will give an account for God. But, but here's, the, here's the revelation in Jesus that not only is God righteous, but he is merciful. And he is grace-filled even to overflowing. Well, think about that that imagery, being there present as this wine, this water is turned to wine. First of all, the, the fact that it's made from, from jars that were filled before with water that was for purification. Now, now the, the wedding party has already gone through the purification process. Remember, the jars are empty. Uh, in, in Jewish culture, it was important to have this symbolic act of recognizing our need for cleansing, for the sin of our lives to be forgiven. You know, when, when, when Myron, Father Myron will, will wash his hands with a lavava bowl, and I will as well, it's, it's to be symbolic. I mean, obviously, hopefully we've washed our hands before we get to that point, but it's symbolic to, to remind us that, you know, who are we? Who are we to stand at the altar and to celebrate communion? Well, it's a reminder that, that we need to be cleansed by, the, by, by God before we can stand there. In the same way they, the ancient Jewish culture was, so there would be these purification um, bowls there. Oddly, I mean, not, strangely, in African culture, they still send a servant to wash the hands of people before they eat meals. It's so close to the culture. But, but here there would have been this purification process of, of, of recognizing their own sinfulness and their need, oops, sorry, need, for, need to... Uh, Need to be cleansed before God. i got to keep my hand off that left pocket. So, um, but, so Jesus takes those same jars, those same jugs, and he has them refilled with water, but this time to be turned into wine. Think about that. 
the need for purification, the need to be forgiven for the sins of our lives, Jesus turns that into wine. We, we can't miss the symbolism here, the foreshadowing here. Jesus is going to, to say his very blood cleanses us from sin. This is my blood which is given for you. Jesus is he's, he's foreshadowing. He's, if this is the very beginning of the gospel as he begins to have these epiphanies, these, these revelations of who he is and his glory and who, he, who he's going to be for the people. But here's the, here's the water of purification, the jugs used for purification to be turned into wine. His own blood shed for us to purify us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But not only that, we're told that when the, the master of ceremonies drinks the wine, he is overwhelmed with how good the wine was. Now, I'm not a wine connoisseur. My wife is a bit of a wine connoisseur. We have some wine connoisseurs in the building today. And, and, but I know enough to know that, that wine that has been aged for a long time is better. That, don't miss that symbol. Here is this new wine, just been made wine from water, miraculous work of Jesus, and yet it tastes like aged wine, like the very best of wine. Well, again, Jesus is, is foreshadowing his glory. He who comes later and yet was from the beginning. He who appears to be new. That's why people have such a hard time justifying the Old and the New Testament. How does it all fit together? Because Jesus comes so much later in history, and yet he who comes later is actually before. He's He's not new wine, he's, he's the old wine. He's, he's God's best wine. He is God's perfect provision, but he's coming late. Jesus will say, I come that you might have, he comes later in the chapter, he'll talk about a new temple, which is his own body, blows the Jewish mind. He'll talk in chapter three about new, new a, a living life, a new a being born again to Nicodemus. He'll talk in chapter 4 about this new water that he comes to give and a new way to worship. Jesus is all about new, new wine, new temple, new life, new water, new, new worship. It's all about something God is doing. It is older, it's the best, and yet it's strangely out of place. The master of the ceremony says, usually people wait till... Folks have had enough to drink, and then they throw out the, the cheaper wine. And yet, here, here you've, given the, you've waited the very best for last. Jesus is the last, but he's the best. Comes after all the prophets, and yet he's the greatest. But then thirdly, not only these other two characteristics, but the, the, the abundance of wine. Okay, six containers that hold 20 to 30 gallons, we're talking about a ton of wine. That is a lot of wine to people that have already been drinking and celebrating. Now, weddings in the ancient world went on for several days, so they, they didn't, it wasn't like it was a you know, 15-minute wedding and then a two-hour reception. We're talking about rejoicing and celebrating for probably maybe closer to a week. But still, that's a lot of wine. That's a ton of wine. What are we to make of this? Well, it's the abundance, it's the overflow, it's, it's, this, it's this almost overwhelming sense of provision. Isn't that, isn't that the grace of our Lord? That he overwhelms us. Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ offered himself 
this gracious, unmerited act on God's part to offer Christ to be the propitiation for the sins of the world while we were yet sinners, while we were completely undeserving. He overwhelms us with his grace. Friends, this is, the, this, is this first epiphany sign in John chapter 2, and it's, it's, it's meant to be a bit excessive. It is, because the love, the grace of Christ is excessive. It's overwhelming. Now, I've purposely started in the middle of the story and gone to the end, but now let me just remind you back to the beginning um, because how does this begin? They're there at the wedding, and Mary realizes, good Jewish mother, she realizes they've run out of wine. Moms always have the better, you know, they're always acute. I'd rather send Jody someplace and have her report to me what was going on for me, for me to go. She picks up on things that I just never see. Jesus' mother immediately recognizes that they have run out of wine. Now, when I was a teenager, I, I foolishly... In my Baptist background, I knew the scripture very well, and, and, and I, I misused this scripture. My mom wanted me to do something. Yeah, this is what you think I'm going to say is what I'm going to say. My mom asked me to do something. I said, woman, why do you bother me? My time has not yet come. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to tell your mother that, don't do it, Jeremy, because I've done it, and you will not enjoy the repercussions of that. You think a, a, a Catholic or a Jewish mother can put a little guilt on you? Just, you know, a Baptist mother can just, whew, she, could, she was not ex- at all happy with my misuse of Scripture. But what are we to make of this? Why do I say that? Why I, I share that with you, to, to recognize that it is this strange saying. I mean, Mary could have taken offense. Well, but why do you bother me? My, my time has not yet come. Jesus is recognizing and and talking already here in John chapter 2 about his hour. What is his hour? What is his time? Well, his time will be when he goes to the cross, when he he allows himself to be arrested, convicted falsely, carried to, to judgment at the cross. That is his hour. That is when his glory will be fully revealed. God, God's, who is God? God is one who gives himself this is what love looks like to offer oneself selflessly, sacrificially. That's his hour. It's not yet coming. But, but get this idea that, that even here at the beginning, even, even while he says to Mary, my time has not yet come, we have to do this in accordance with the Father's plan, yet still the wine comes. Still the abundant, overflowing grace of Jesus is revealed at this wedding party. Do you get it? I mean, do you see it? It's like it just oozes out of him. She, he recognizes that there's greater glory to come, but yet, what does Mary do? I love it. She says, turns to the servants, servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Isn't that amazing? I mean, just meditate on that this week. You know, whatever the problem is in your life, whatever the situation is, whatever the overwhelming condition, we have no wine. There is a crisis. How can we celebrate when there's no wine? Do whatever Jesus tells you. Take take it to Jesus. Take the problem to Jesus and do whatever he tells you to. Man, that that right there, as they say, that will preach. That is such an attitude. Mary 
over and over again in the scriptures, she becomes this model of discipleship for us. This is what we're to do. We're not to be offended. Just do whatever he tells you to do. So then Jesus directs the servants, and they fill the water. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? In the, in the story, we aren't told that any of the wedding guests find out about this miracle. There's, we're not, it's not described us at all. Even, even the, those who are in charge don't seem to understand where the wine came from. But the servants knew. Isn't that interesting? The servants knew. We're those servants. We know where the grace comes from. We know that God has done something miraculous. And it's our job to serve. And the disciples know. And we're told that the disciples believed in Jesus as a result of it. Oftentimes I feel, and, and as I begin to think, how do we apply this to our lives? I begin to think, you know, oftentimes we, we think of the grace of God as a limited quantity. And it makes us a little stingy sometimes. And we get resentful when people, you know, we see them experience the grace of God and then they don't respond as we would expect them to or we think they should or as appro- maybe it's even as appropriately to us respond. And yet we, we, become, we become stingy with the grace. This is one thing I think we're to learn from this miracle, the wedding of Cana, is that God's grace is so overwhelmingly abundant that we need not get stingy or feel as if there's not going to be enough for us. I got a brand new grandchild. There is, but there's plenty of time for me to be with him. I can share him with other grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends and family. There's plenty Oh, when you, when you think about, I mean, just why else would there, why Jesus make all this wine? To say, look, don't think the grace of God is going to run out. There, he, it's as if Jesus is saying, there's plenty more where this came from. You haven't seen anything yet. As he pours out this blessing. And this is one small way of showing his grace, his glory. The glory of God in Jesus is his grace. Now just real quickly, just remember that second lesson, the Corinthians chapter uh, 12 lesson. Because the Corinthians, they knew about the Holy Spirit. They knew about the gift of the Spirit and God's gracious gifts. And, and they were into spiritual gifts, inventories, and they were into speaking in tongues, and they were into all sorts of charismatic expressions. But Paul is rebuking them in chapter 12 because, because they have begun to compare their spiritual gifts to one another's and to begin to think that they are somehow spiritually superior to other people. As if to think that any gift we've been given is not a gracious gift of God's grace, a gracious gift of God's grace. There's a circular definition right there. there that, that everything that we're given is a gift from God. That, we're, that it, there's an overflow. Paul says, don't begin to get spiritually prideful because you, you've got this gift and this person has this gift, but rather to see it that, that there's no limit to God's Spirit's ability to pour out gifts upon all his people for his glory. We can't be stingy with it. We can't, we can't become consumed by feeling as if 
if it's between you or me. I get, either get the grace or you get the grace. God's grace is bound. It doesn't even matter if people understand it. Oftentimes they are recipients of the grace of God that they have no way of understanding it and possibly comprehending it. And yet God pours it out on all of us. Well, there's lots to learn from here. If you're a person who thinks that you have, um, you have done something that is unforgivable, think again. Think about the wedding at Cana. Think about God's abundant overflow of grace to these people. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, poured out his love for us. I love what Tom Wright, N.T. Wright says, the Anglican bishop and theologian. He says, he says I think sometimes we, we, we sell short the gospel. We don't understand. It's not simply about our sins being forgiven. Rotten sinners, your life's, you've been forgiven, your sinners. But that, in fact, Christ has gained victory over sin and death. As Wright says that, that Jesus tricked the devil and, and all the powers of hell, and he drew them to the cross, and then he crucified them with him, and then he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. There is nothing that cannot be forgiven by the grace of God. That is God's glory that he is merciful and gracious abundantly to overflowing. And to those of us who would be in the midst of situations where we, we're, we, we recognize that we're finding ourselves self-centered and unwilling to be gracious towards someone else, re-examine the story and recognize how abundant God's grace is. If nothing else, God is revealing in this, this amazing story, that his glory is filled with grace. And see yourself as a conduit of grace. Not as just a Pez dispenser of grace, you know. As you deserve it, you get one, right? No, a flowing of grace. Never thought I'd use the word pet. Pez in a sermon. Jose, you're going to have to tie my, my arm down or something. I can preach with one hand behind my back. So, and lastly, just learn the lesson of of Mary. Whatever the problem is, bring it to Jesus. Watch what he does. Do whatever he tells you to do. Trust him with it. Let his grace, his glory be revealed through the working out of your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.